0: Good morning. Um, The teaching text is from Matthew 22 and Matthew 28. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Matthew 28:16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord.
1: If you're visiting with us, you picked the right Sunday. These are literally the greatest hits of Christianity right here. We're going we're gonna to spin them for you this morning, um, so welcome. I want to say one thing before we jump into to the reflection on those two texts. Um, if you've been around our church family for a couple of years, you know that something's been missing. Maybe you haven't been able to put your finger on it exactly, but normally by this time of year, we'd be really pushing our annual uh, parish-wide retreat that we go on every year in the spring. And we haven't been mentioning it because wah, wah, we're not doing it. Um, and I just wanted to let you know why. Uh, we, uh, we, we have often have a phenomenal time on that, on that retreat every year. Um, it's obviously not something that everyone can get the time off or, or, or join us on. And this year, if you weren't aware, we're turning 10 as a church. Um, yes, fantastic. So that's going to be in September, and we're going to put the resources that we would have put towards bonding uh, in a retreat this spring, towards a huge party and homecoming celebration for everyone who's been a part of our church over the last 10 years to come back and and share in a a couple of things with us. So I just want to tell you about that and ask you to save the date. Uh, 9-15 is going to be the official 10-year celebration, Uh, so so definitely come. Uh, We're going to be getting the word out to people who helped our church get started, who've been over the years, who've had to move on for various Uh, so, so come on the fifteenth. Uh, we're also going to have uh, John Mark Comer He's uh, going to come in and do an event the weekend before on the way of Jesus, how how we live as disciples. It's going to be a real sort of like um, reflecting on all that we've we've been about as as a church for ten years and what we're headed into for the next ten, twenty, thirty years. Um, so John is a phenomenal teacher. He's going to come share with us. Uh, there's going to be a Saturday event that weekend before. So it's going to be basically like two weeks of a wild. Um, you know, party to celebrate the 10 years. And I think by the time this, the, the fall rolls around and we're in the middle of these celebrations, it will have been worth it that we forego uh, going away on our retreat this year in order to push uh, to celebrating together uh, in the fall as we hit 10 years. I get the chance to share with you guys a lot of the people that I'm reading or people that I'm influenced by. And, and one of my favorite living Christian thinkers is a man named Andy Crouch. Um, I've really, really benefited over the years. Uh, from the combination of both his mind and heart uh, as it comes to thinking about how you live as a follower of Jesus in, in times like ours. and. Um, he's done some phenomenal books on how we make culture as human beings. That it's one of our primary callings to take the raw materials of the world that God has given us and to to make things. To take sounds and make symphonies. To take you know um, you know to take wood and make make homes and chairs and and, and city and culture. And, and he's he's done tremendous work on that. He's done some tremendous work on on how we. Uh, Share and operate in power structures in 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 our in our world. I'm just commending Andy Crouch to you, totally unrelated to the Book of Matthew, which we're going to hit in a second. He's also just written a book on the Tech Wise Family: How to How We Relate to Technology as Followers of Jesus in Our Time, uh, pr- pretty pretty pressing issue. I was listening to him last week give a short lecture, uh, and he said something that left me thinking ever since. And you might not immediately connect it to the, the Greatest Hits text that we just read a few minutes ago, but I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll get there together. The basic idea of what Crouch was saying was um, when we experience advancement through uh, technology, when we have technological advancement, there is usually a corresponding diminishment that we experience as well. And a lot of times that diminishment comes as an unintended consequence of the technological advancement and and some of them are simple and easy to recognize, and some of them are insidious and can actually do, do real harm. But uh, I just want to run through a couple of them so we're all on the same page. I think you probably can start guessing at some of what, what, what I would be meaning. But the first one that Andy mentioned was the Spirit Airlines problem. So just think about this reality. Generations before ours... Um, could never have, a, have imagined the ease and the speed with which we travel across the country Like if you wanted to go to california, it's like whole family covered wagon half of you die along the way just like uh, You know, like it's it's a really devastating uh, Attempt to make it all the way just across our country um, And now you can just get on a plane and be in la later today. The problem is that we're flying spirit airlines so we're, we're being herded like cattle, we're paying for peanuts, like we're, un, we're uncomfortable on the way. Like how many of you are sitting in coach on Spirit Airlines and thinking like, I'm just overcome with the wonder of air travel? It's incredible, there's no question, but it's sort of the wonder of it does begin to, 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 drain, to drain away. So is the exchange worth it? Yeah, probably. I mean, like, well, listen, we're not, we're not, let's not go back to the covered wagon days, sure. Uh, but that's the Spirit Airlines problem. The next one is uh, the problem of your mom's phone number. Uh, just a quick, quick straw poll. Um, actually, just use your hands. Don't use straw. Uh, how many of you, honestly, right now, could tell me your mother's phone number? Raise your hands if you know it. Oh, my gosh. That's astonishing. Okay, if you're under 30, how many of you know your mom's phone number? Raise your hand. Oh, Whatever it's not, not, you're not helping, you're not helping my point that I'm making. Okay, let's go to this, how many of you know your best friend's phone number? Okay, that's a lot less, that is a lot less. And the, the point is, do you remember when you knew like 50 phone numbers like what like you could tell you could tell like this random kid you just met in in third grade and you could you knew his phone number like i still know 292-2180 the phone the phone number that i grew up with as as a kid but now i honestly struggle to remember the difference between my sister's and mom's phone number because they're a little bit a little bit the same And, and increasingly the generation that's coming up under us if you ask them to remember a phone number they just don't why answer is really easy. We have offloaded a part of our humanity, our memory onto machines. The machine does the work for us. And so the brain space that used to be, uh, you know, taken up with remembering your mom's phone number, now you can play Candy Crush or something like that. Like there's new, uh, new endeavors that we get to engage in as, as human beings. Um, uh, uh, Again, I would say, well, obviously the diminishment in that case is, is, is fine, and, and and we know that like the reduction of our memory didn't just begin with the smartphone. Like you go all the way back to the printing press. Andy Crouch was saying that you know a typical lecture, uh, you know before Gutenberg's press hit, and and, and and we had books and the the proliferation of this knowledge revolution. That someone would hear a lecture like I'm giving now, and the people who were listening would remember almost every word of it. Can you imagine our, our capacity to, re, to remember being so diminished over time because, uh, now that's really important if you have an oral culture and you're passing along all the information about how to do life through face-to-face communication like this, and we just, we're just not doing it the same, the same way anyway, anymore, so we're not going back, of course, but his point was that we need to acknowledge some of the diminishments that are, 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 are present so what if my legs are, are cramped in my bag, you know, I had to pay $50 to check it, or I can't remember my mom's, my mom's phone number, I'll still choose that we can, we can fly, we have books and we have Google Maps. So, But the uptick that we're experiencing right now, there is greater technological advancement happening at a faster rate than, it, than it, you know, like at any point in history. And we're offloading a lot of our capacity as human beings to machines. And it it starts to put a question back to us, which is, what, what is it that essentially makes us human? Like, this is like meaning of life question. This is like nature of being questions. What is the thing that makes you Essentially human. We're starting as a culture to kind of wake up and ask some questions, like just because we can make something, should we make something? Uh, You're seeing more and more of those types of conversations going around, but but I think we should be willing to acknowledge in places where our humanity is experiencing diminishment. And I'm not trying to be a curmudgeon about about technology. But we've had a, we had a knowledge revolution in our world with the printing press. And, and I'd say we're all grateful for libraries, of course. Uh, but we should think about what it's done to our, our memory on some level. We've had an industrial revolution that gave us the ability to produce goods and services at an astonishing rate and totally changed the world economy. But Charles Dickens will help us remember that not everything about the industrial revolution was rosy. Like there was some human diminishment that took place. We, 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 you're not just a, a human being with your hands in the soil. You're working in a line in a factory and maybe that does take your economic prospects way up but in some ways it does uh, pose a challenge to to your your sense of being a human being significant impact on our community and we're in the middle living right now right in the middle of a computation revolution we we have computers now do you do you remember like some put your hand up if you remember getting online for the first time do you remember the sound it would make? And then you sometimes it was busy, like you can't get on the internet, someone else is on there already, like what's happening? And now like we're, we are the first generation. I, I, this keeps me up at night. We're the first generation teaching our kids how to live with computers in their pockets. That presents really challenging questions, ethically, socially, morally, like what does it mean that my twelve-year-old can go into a strip club on a video game? What does that mean about? like, Is that a diminishment to my humanity, to our humanity? Is there a threat at least that's present in in that in that type of that type of question? Serious implications, right? We're we're, we're learning for our ability to concentrate, for our ability to connect with people, like like. A generation of young men and women who really struggle to connect face-to-face because they've just been connecting electronically. What is, that? is that a significant diminishment of our humanity? What about our sense of well-being with this astonishing revolution that we're in the middle of? Again, please, I'm not, a, uh, like, I'm not trying to be a curmudgeon on, on technology. I'm simply trying to have us ask the question that Jesus is trying to answer in Matthew 22. And that is what is essentially the, 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 the heart of what it is to be a human being. But with all these advancements, do you know that the, the life expectancy in our country has declined for the first time in decades? Over the last three years, we've had declining life expectancy in an epidemic of deaths of despair. Like more suicide and death by addiction than, than like a, a massive, huge uptick in that. And, and yet we have all this freedom at our, at our, at our fingertips. We have un, unprecedented ability to roam the world Spirit Airlines, we have unprecedented ability to roam information on the internet. We can pick up and start over when things get really challenging for us, but we might be painfully learning what human beings have learned over the centuries, and that is that the ability to roam is not quite as essential for our hearts as the ability to know you're at home, the ability to know that you belong, that you're seen, that you're loved, that actually, my friend, friend Mark Sayers points out that if you have an ecosystem for human well-being, uh, somewhere in there you're going to have meaning and community and freedom. You, you have to have a reason to be alive. Like we have to have, you know, like the scripture says, a, a telos, like a, a driving reason for, for getting up in the morning. What, 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 what is it that I'm living for? I need meaning, but I also can't do that alone. I need people to do, I need people to live out my, my meaning with, so I need, I need community. And then I need freedom, which is the ability to make adjustments and to make changes along the way if I need to adjust the meaning or I need to adjust the community or either, either of them are not working out. And Sayers points out that if you wanna picture these Containers. The freedom container in our generation is absolutely overflowing. You have so many options at your fingertips. You can you can go. You could probably be living in another city without a terrible amount of stress one month from now, and just start over again. You can reinvent yourself online today. But so much of what's connected to our meaning and sense of community is actually staying put and pushing through. And so you actually do have to have a diminishment of your freedom. And like in America, that just sounds impossible. But there has to be a diminishment of your freedom to have an upswell in these other crucial parts of the ecosystem of our well-being, which is that I have meaning and that I have community. So... With all this unprecedented new opportunity, how do we keep our humanity? How do you make a decision about what's most important? What is necessary for us to thrive and flourish as human beings? I know if you're with us, we come back to these questions all the time because they are our questions. They are the human questions that we have to, we have to ask. Those who encountered Jesus in his, his day, even if they disagreed with him and wanted him gone, they had to admit that they hadn't seen anything like this person before. Maybe they heard some account or rumor of a prophet in, a, in another time, in another place that had miraculous power. But when Jesus was standing right in front of them, many of them had no idea what to do with him. There was an, an Unassailable authority that he spoke with about the kingdom of God and and the word of God and about Israel's story and about the prophets, but then he demonstrated that with with healing, with miracles, like people are standing up and people are eating enough and people are seeing all of a sudden. He was incredible, but there's no doubt if you look at the reactions around him that he also was a threat. Many many thinkers have made uh, this 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 point from C.S. Lewis to to Bono that uh, if you take seriously what Jesus seems to be saying. He's either an insane person or he's legit. But there's really not much room in between for him to be like, you know, like, like C.S. Lewis talks about just a good teacher. Like he doesn't really sort of leave that option open to us because he's saying, I'm the son of God and I can forgive your sins. Yeah, the ones you committed against God, I can let you off the hook for those and stand up and walk and take your mat. And you guys all have enough to eat and you got to eat my, my, my flesh and drink my blood if you want to inherit the kingdom of God. It's like, hang on just a second. So there were those who were deeply threatened by what Jesus said, by what Jesus did, and by who Jesus was. And what happens when we're feel threatened? <laughs> Many of us have to find some way to remove the threat. We have to figure out a way to delegitimize the thing that we feel threatened by, or find a way to dismiss it, or find a way to get away from it. And that's what you see when you, when you look at the interactions people are having with Jesus. They're trying to delegitimize him. And, the, and actually, the, the text that we're looking at this morning, they're trying to trap him in deciding between one of the 600-something laws of Moses, that if he picks one, he's not picking some other ones, and therefore he's going to be in a trap because he will have, uh, he will have fallen into their, in, into, their, into their game. So before we hate on them, though, I think it's important to you would probably be doing the same thing. Like if you weren't expecting it and you just encountered this person who seemed to speak with power and live with power and was something really intriguing, but you knew to follow them would probably cost you a lot. It's like, I want to make sure this is really the way I want to go. I want to I want to ask some questions. Let's see how this person handles the hardest questions of our, of our of our human condition. Uh, questions about God, about being human, about how to live, about our future. These are the types of questions that they put to Jesus when they run into him. And our teaching text this morning picks up right in the middle of one of those tests. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, who is the greatest commandment? Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? We have this little detail that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. If you want to know what that's about, it's, it, it's um, on a paper Bible just above in the paragraph above in your phone. You'll just scroll back and you'll be able to see the text, uh, the text above. But Jesus was in an argument with the Sadducees, and they were sort of the most elite ruling class of Jesus' day in the Jewish community. And they didn't believe, they famously didn't believe in the resurrection. But the question that they put to Jesus is like, let's say somebody got married somehow, crazy life, seven times. Who are they going to be married to in the afterlife? And they put this question, even though they didn't believe in the resurrection, they put this question to Jesus and he sort of, you could go back and see how he answers it because that, that, that detail is not quite, some are like, I'd like to know. That detail is not as important as the impulse behind why they ask the question and it's, that's, that's this. If we feel threatened by something but we don't want to change... We have to look for that reason to dismiss it. So even though they didn't believe in the resurrection, they come at Jesus with this hypothetical question about someone who got married seven times. And what we're witnessing in this text is sort of like a tag team, like the Sadducees were silenced. And so the Pharisees are like, all right, we got this. We're experts in the law. We've got a few questions. So they, they pick up the question and they're asking Jesus to decide this. What is the most important thing God wants to say to human beings? You remember what's happening when they received the law of Moses? We've talked about it many times. They grew up in slavery. For 400 years, they had a culture of slavery. God rescues them, pulls them out through the plagues, through, through the Red Sea. He, he, they wander. He establishes their culture and community. But he gives them this sort of constitution of freedom. <laughs> Like, you have to go from living in a slave culture mentality to living in, in freedom as the people of God. And, and that's what the commandments are about. Like, here's how you order your affections. Here's how you order your life. Here's how you think. But also, here's what you do, like, around harvest time. And, like, every detail of life is, is covered in this. And so Jesus is being tricked. Like, if he, whatever he chooses, he's going to leave something out. What's the most important thing God wants to say to human beings? Jesus does the one thing he can do to sidestep the trap that is in their question and also do a deep reveal of God's heart for you, for me, and for every human being. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your minds. Other gospels have the strength in there. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang On these two commandments, please, 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 Trinity Grace Park Slope, don't miss this. When Jesus has the opportunity to frame the meaning of life, the most important thing that God would say to human beings, of all the commandments, the whole law and the prophets, the whole narrative, the whole story, what's the essential thing that we need to know? And he frames it in terms of relationship. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The kingdom of God is what we're talking about for these 40 days after Easter because it's what Jesus talked about for the 40 days after Easter. The kingdom of God is a relational kingdom. These are our greatest hits. This is why we get to spend them over and over again. This is what human beings are made for. This is what the meaning of life is, is love, is relationships. It It is knowing this God who transcends our human experience but is somehow a part of it and it is loving one another in a deep, meaningful, covenant way. God's vision for you is that you are a heart-soul-mind-strength complex. That you were designed for communion and love. Now, the way you're messaged in our culture, the way I'm messaged, is, is something a little bit different. It's that you're a brain and a body and a cognitive mechanical interface that's there to communicate and to buy things. But God, when he had the chance, he said... You're a heart-soul-mind-strength complex de- designed for communion and love. You're designed for communion and love. Your life does not fit into a phone. So past basic survival, the most profound needs you have as a human being are love God, love people. And when Jesus was like, okay, now take that and like make a movement of it and spread it around the world, and it literally, like, whatever you think about Jesus, you can't deny the historic re- re- reliability of the fact that his movement took off. And the way he said it was going was to go was along relational lines. Love God, love people. Then after the resurrection, he comes, he comes to his disciples. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I love that detail. Human beings were complicated, and he's come back from the dead. Still, we're like, I don't know. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Love God, love people, and grow along relational lines. This is how the movement of Jesus is going to go forward. Like how he's God. Like Yahweh shakes the mountains, lightning and thunder, you know, like huge displays of power to the, to, to the, to the Pharaohs. Jesus comes and says, the fullest expression of my kingdom going forward into the world is you going and loving your neighbor. Letting them know that there's an invitation for them to be immersed, baptized into Father, Son, Holy Spirit, to be brought into that community of the Trinity, to know God in that way, and then to to learn this way of love. What's the way of love he's talking about? When Jesus had to summarize it, he said, "Love love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a relational kingdom. It grows along relational lines. These are our greatest hits. This is the meaning of life. This has to be at the center of your heart or you will break on the rocks of reality. So, how do you love God? I've got three points. Of course, there's no way to hit it quickly, but I do want to give you a couple of clues of places to look. Uh, how do you love God? The first is to remember that it 's about your affections you 're sitting here in, in, in a somewhat non participatory way right now, um, listening to information go into your ears and then sort of get sorted out in your brain but But the way God is asking us to love Him is with our whole self our our, our mind soul strength all all, all all of us not just not just our, our our synapses and so you have to love God with your affections and everything that we're learning about how we're formed as human beings is that you can train your affections to love certain things. You can change the appetites of your soul by the habits of your life. So one of the ways that you love God is to see and celebrate and appreciate the things that are true of God. Some of you who are further along will know that's something like a life of worship, but it's essentially to let your affections be stirred by the trustworthiness of God. It's like I actually believe this God can and wants to meet the deepest needs of my life in the most life-giving way. I, I, I believe this God really, truly loves me, sees me, knows me. And so I'm going to spend time each day cultivating my affections for this God. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for seeing me. Thank you for forgiving me. I'm going to sing. Some of you are going to put your hands up. Some of you are going to dance. Some of you are going to journal. But you cultivate your affections for God by remembering and celebrating who God is, who God has revealed himself to be. And I think a huge part of that. I just stopped this this week reading one of the morning psalms. It was like, you are fully trustworthy, and I think that is a hinge point for us. Do you really think God can be trusted with your one life? The second thing, this is not as cool, is obedience. How do you love God? Now, this is not exactly how you love your neighbor. You don't have to obey your neighbor to love them. But if you really believe that God is trustworthy, that God is in control, that God sees your life, that God made you and made the world and knows the very best life for you, that he can make a promise and deliver, that he comes to give abundant life, then you have to follow in step with that or somewhere up the line you don't really believe it. And so Jesus, when he's asked to summarize the heart of what it is to love God, he's like, keep the, the words, <laughs> like do the things, o, o, obey. And many of you who will have a life of of trying that out, you realize there's a lot of times where there's confusion over here and it doesn't get sorted out until you take the step over here to obedience. And then you learn a whole bunch about God that you were demanding to know over here and didn't. But when you took the step of obedience, it's like a whole new arena of love opened up in your life. Jesus is insisting that love is more than sentiment that it is it is more than just a feeling that you have that it is rooted in a commitment that has actions associated with it, like the picture of love that Jesus is calling to is not just I, I I think you're great and I want to approve what you approve that is such a shallow definition of of love, even though we sometimes sink sink to that love is truly wanting the very best in the most true way for some for someone else for for the other so you stir your affections, and then you actually do have to obey. But, and then the last one, and this is so important, is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> like God's not acts, asking you to run your heart, soul, mind, strength complex designed for communion and love on the fuel of just your self-will. He's literally given his very spirit, deposited into every one of us, so the life of God is in us and helping us stir our affections and obey. You're not supposed to grit your teeth and be able to do it on your own. It's more like you're constantly surrendering to love. So that's how you love God. Settle that. Number two, how do you love people? We have a slogan in the Clardy house. There's a couple. What are siblings for? Taking care of each other. This is a liturgy we say in our home all the time. Another one is, when you're selfish, you lose. And A lot of times that's kind of shouted. I'm sorry to say. Full, full confession. Um, when you're selfish, you lose. Like, you might win a little bit right now, but when you're selfish, you, you lose. You ultimately, like you're 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 just asking everything to absorb a, a revolve, revolve around you, and and it, it's costing you something. Jesus puts the secret for how to love other people right in the right in the answer to the question he he gets asked. He says, "Love your neighbor as yourself." Most of you, the person in the world you're most familiar with their needs is you, and your your longing and and and, and your life. Jesus is saying that the key to to moving out from selfishness and from a, a self oriented place into love is to be, to begin to become aware of other people's needs to the, in the same way you're aware of your own. And that does right that's not easy. That takes work. That takes a lot of time. That takes. Like, you're not going to get there in in one encounter, of course. Like, you can have a general general love for human beings, but we know we cultivate love by sitting across from someone and looking in their eyes and listening to them and hearing their story and moving out into the things that they need and want and desire and the way we care for our own needs and desires. And so somehow in the rubric of what God is saying is most important is that we love him in such a way that we literally draw resources from the life of God for loving others because... If you're selfish, you lose. Uh, it's quick and easy to say, but like when you press into it, like who's gonna let go of their, their real needs unless they think they're gonna be met in some other way? And there's there's also a way like where you can have a real sense of loving yourself and not just have a selfish orientation in the world. There's some way that that, that works, and I think it's right here in the heart of this, this thing Jesus is, is, is talking about. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You know that if you can't love yourself or won't love yourself, you probably are going to have a really challenging time loving your neighbor. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We have to draw resources for this love from the first one. It is like it. It is connected. They're inseparable. You know you need God-type resources in your relationships. Forgiveness and grace, the ability to see the best in someone else, truth and kindness, radical generosity, The creativity to think of something wonderful for someone else and then enact it. Like that's God type things that he does. Love God, love people. And the movement is going to spread along relational lines. My guess is not much of what I've said is new to you. (laughs) Love God, love people. It really is the greatest hits. (laughs) It's, it's the essential part of the kingdom of God that Jesus has come to invite us into. So I just want to end this morning by sharing from my own life right off the front pages and from your lives because I have coffee with you and I, I know something of your lives as well is what I think three huge barriers to this are, to loving God, to loving people, and to the movement growing along relational lines, fear, pride, and secrets, I'm not going to spend a ton of time because I, 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 I know where we're at on the, on the time front, but I'm going to move quickly through this. Um, we said as, as we were beginning to worship this morning that the scriptures tell us perfect love casts out fear that it pushes back on our anxiety, that it reminds us who we truly are, that it says you're loved and seen and known, and, and I care for you and care about you enough that I can carry you through whatever you're dealing with right now, and that this fear you're in the middle of, it has a starting point and an ending point, and God goes on in both directions, that he is not the great what if, he is the great I am. I read an op-ed in the, in the Times by David Brooks, and if you're not down with his politics, don't sweat this, just listen to the, the thing he says, um, <clears throat> he was talking about um, the fear that has sort of pervaded our, our 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 culture. It pervades our political discourse in our in our nation right now. It it sections us off into into sort of like you know really venomous tri- tribes against one another. And that's not that's maybe that's true in the comment sections of the internet more than it's true in real life. But it's out there, right? And he's talking about fear and how challenging love is in the face of it. I think you'll be able to hear it through this. He says, we get to the point where the fear itself begins to take control. Fear generates fear. Everyone feels besieged. Power is somehow, else, somewhere, somehow elsewhere in the malevolent forces who are somewhere out there who will stop at nothing. Fear puts a dark filter over everything. This is the phrase that got me. The fearful person is unable to hear good news. You ever been so overrun with anxiety that it just doesn't matter what somebody says to you, you just can't not hear it? Or you're so overrun with depression that you just can't, you can't, like that. If we're a good news community, we're good news people. And if fear can be draped over your heart so you can't hear good news, that's a serious problem for us. So we have to have something that can cut through the fear and, and the scriptures keep insisting that it's something like perfect love The fearful person is unable to hear the good news while any possible threat looms large. We are in the middle of one of the longest economic booms in our history with wages finally rising again for the middle class. But nobody feels that because of the sense that it's all about to come crashing down. Fear runs ahead of the facts and inflames the imagination. 90% of the time we're not afraid of what's happening to us, but of some catastrophic thing our imagination tells us might happen. Fear makes everything amorphous. Immigration is a phenomenon that has concrete advantages and concrete disadvantages, but those in the grip of fear, but for those in the grip of fear, immigration or globalization, Silicon Valley, Wall Street or automa- automation are shapeless insidious forces that are out of control. The inevitable reaction is overreaction. Fear does this thing to our consciousness where it shrinks us back into ourselves. Like fear has the power to make you just concerned about your own world. And so we need this invading good news of, of, of the love of the gospel that can push back and speak shalom into our fear. Fear will be a barrier to love in the way Jesus is talking about. The second one I'll say is, is pride, and we're going to spend even less time on this. And I'm not just talking about feeling obviously arrogant or boastful. Sometimes, for some of you, the most prevalent place pride shows up in your life is self-pity. And you don't think of it as pride because you're beating yourself up, but it's really you're still revolving in your thoughts around yourself and you're letting the ticker tape of your thoughts basically be about woe it, woe is me. And so you, you, you become unwilling to, or reluctant to move out towards the other person because you think you're a little bit better than them or you think you're a little bit worse than them. And either way, it's pride. It keeps us in a place of self instead of moving out towards the other because we think we're a little bit better or we think they're a little bit better. I won't say much more on that, but pride and fear often combine in our lives and what it leads to is secrets. The recovery community out there, they have these slogans like you're only as sick as your secrets. Basically, like if you'll just bring it out into the light, there'll be the chance that that thing can be healed But when there's a mixture of pride and fear, it swirls around in us and it it makes us feel like there's parts of me I have to keep closed off. And and it's not always like a big nefarious scandal either. It can just be like a a category of private resentments or or personal choices that no one else knows about. Or the way that you really feel like you get re- re- relief and relaxation at the end of a day. Like there's just there's just these things that like you don't really want anyone else to know about. So they don't know about the mechanisms that keep your soul going. So then on some level they don't really know you. And therefore you're cut off from that, love, that, that opportunity and invitation that's in the heart of what Jesus is saying. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The whole complex of you. And love your neighbor as yourself. Become as aware of their needs as you are of your own. Fear and pride and secrets. So great, what do we do? I just want to ask you to invite God into each of those. Where are you feeling fearful? How is it cutting you off from love? Invite God in. Where are you feeling prideful? Where are you feeling like disconnected from your your fellow human beings, either because you feel better than them or because you're sort of draped in self-pity? Invite God into that. What, what, What secrets do you have? Is it weighing your soul down? Is there a place that you can unburden yourself to another human being and really truly be known and be seen? It's sort of practice. We need, we need like, I, don't, I would know so much less about the grace of God if I hadn't been living with my wife, Allison, for the last 14 years. I don't know just as much about the idea of what God's grace could be like, except that I've seen it embodied in her, and that's why the two commandments go together, because so often you'll see what Yahweh's love looks like coming through a normal human being. And practicing the art of unburdening your heart and confessing and and sharing your secrets and letting someone else in, it deflates your fear, it deflates your pride, and it makes a a space possible for something new to grow. So what do we do? Invite God into your fear, into your pride, into your secrets. And then on a practical forward-stepping note, ask God this week to direct your affections. Look at what you spend time thinking and doing, and what kind of longings does that cultivate in you? What does it make you want more of? And then ask God to show you the essential steps of obedience that you need to take. Some of you guys know some steps of obedience God is inviting you to take. When it comes to God, obedience is a central, crucial element of love. Because it's a speaking back to God that we really do trust God. We can't do any of it except by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I'm going to put the... The second of the greatest hits up there one more time. I think it's across two two screens. So I just want you to notice then the eleven disciples who went to Galilee went up to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, some da da. da, da. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth. Whatever he's about to say, he's saying the full weight of of God is behind this. All authority in heaven on earth is about what I'm about to say. We know what he says. Next next slide. Is there a next slide? There, there's yes. There we go. Fantastic. Who made these? They're great. Um, teaching them. All right. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you to the end of the age. You want to see the two things that are promised on the front end and the back end of how this kingdom is going to move forward? If you're about immersing people into intimate relationship with God and learning the way of, of love that Jesus Jesus embodied before us, you know what you're going to have all authority in heaven and on earth and surely I'm with you to the end of the age. You want God's power and God's presence? One person. Come on. Woo! You want God's presence and God's power? He promised that it goes with this relationship thing. This this mission of love. We're longing for God to show up and show us what you can do, God, and provide for us and and be with us and let us know that you're near. And he said, all authority in heaven and earth is mine, and I'm with you to the end of the age. And it's right in this rubric of relationships that I've taught you about from the beginning. Invite me into your fear. Invite me into your pride. Invite me into your secrets. Cultivate your affections on a daily basis. What you want most really matters. It's what's shaping your life. And then obey the things I say. If they seem absurd in the beginning, you'll learn more and more that it is my way. And it is counterintuitive at times, but it is life. Surely I am with you always to the end of the age, Jesus says. Let me pray for us that we could love this way. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we don't have to guess about what you're about most. You told us, you summarized it for us. And we can't really avoid it or get around it, God, because it's, it's also repeating in our own hearts, loudly or quietly, that we need love, that somehow we are made for that that we need to know you to have your resources to really love in the most full possible way to move out of our small cages of selfishness and into real relationships. So come, Holy Spirit. We are longing for you. Come, Holy Spirit. We wanna invite you into our fear, into our pride, and into our secrets. Help us right now. Help us to trust you that that we can trust you with what we want most, and we can trust you with how we're living. God, I felt so many challenges that to that in my own life this week, this weekend. I need your help, Lord. We need your help. Come, Holy Spirit. Guide us. Come into these places. In Jesus' name. Amen. Church, I'm gonna give you just a few moments just to sit silently to reflect on how god might be speaking to you you can pray if you want something like god is there is there something you're leading me to do in response to what i've heard and i believe god will answer you he'll, he'll begin to speak and put impressions on your heart and mind and then in just a few minutes we're going to come to this feast of god's love the communion table you are made for communion and love ask god how he's speaking to you and we'll, we'll continue to respond in just a few moments